I feel like this is going to be the heated podcast episode version of the real world where things stop getting polite and start getting real. going to get real. Yeah. I can't wait. I'm still so honored. This is going to be fun. Hey, this is Heated, a podcast where we're showing how the COVID and climate crisis stories are actually the same story. I'm Emily Atkin. This podcast grew out of the Heated newsletter I created on Substack. It's easy to find at heated.world, or you can just type Heated newsletter into Google. It'll come up. If you're finding us here on our third episode, make sure you also check out episodes one and two. In episode one, the legendary environmentalist Bill McKibben explains how and why to be a climate activist during a pandemic. And in episode two, journalist Kate Aronoff explains how Congress is and isn't addressing climate change while dealing with the virus. Today, we're talking with environmental justice advocate and organizer Anthony Rogers Wright. Anthony and I have gone through a lot together. He's been a source of mine since at least 2014. As you'll hear, Anthony cuts through the jargon and the niceties. He is intense, and this is a conversation that definitely wouldn't show up in the mainstream climate or health press. Anthony is the policy coordinator for the Climate Justice Alliance, a huge network of communities on the front lines of climate change. Indigenous communities, urban black communities, rural low-income white communities, the people Anthony works with all share one thing in common— they're all disproportionately harmed by the effects of climate change and pollution. And now these communities are being disproportionately harmed by COVID-19, too. I want to make clear that Anthony's only speaking for himself, not the Alliance today. But his work advocating for the environmental justice community is why he's here. As an environmental justice activist, Anthony is here advocating for the idea that all people, regardless of race, class, or social status, have the equal right to live in a healthy environment and a safe climate. But that's much more of an aspiration than a reality right now. The reality that we have to face right now is that we will not all be equal in our suffering when it comes to climate change. And we will not all be equal in our suffering when it comes to coronavirus either. Black people in particular are on the front lines of both crises. In Chicago, 70% of the people who have died from COVID-19 are Black even though Black people make up less than 30% of the population. In Michigan, 40% of COVID-19 deaths are among Black people, even though they're only 14% of the population. In Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, Black people make up 26% of the population, but 80% of coronavirus deaths. Meanwhile, scientists on Tuesday found that coronavirus patients are more likely to die if they live in areas with high air pollution. And Black Americans are 75% more likely than white people to live near oil and gas facilities. These facilities spew air pollutants that trigger not only lung problems, but a whole host of other health problems that worsen COVID-19. All this from the pollution we create to heat our homes. Clearly, COVID-19 and the climate crisis are connected issues. But so are COVID-19 and climate justice, an issue the environmental movement as a whole really needs to do better on. I brought Anthony on today to help us reflect on that. What he says can either make you feel guilty, or it can make you feel motivated. It can make you defensive, or it can make you reflective. You can be sad for yourself, 
Or you can use this moment to act on behalf of populations more vulnerable than you are. The choice is yours. Real quick before we start, though. Heated is a 100% independent project. We're not part of a larger news organization, and we get no corporate or foundation support. You can help make this happen. We're making these shows so all of us can use this moment in time, even when we're struggling, to learn and connect and find ways to act so we don't keep repeating the mistakes that got us here. Your participation matters, and stay tuned at the end to find out how you can make a difference. Enjoy the chat. All right, Anthony, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you so much, Emily. Love talking to you. It's been years and you're not just one of my favorite climate journalists, but one of my favorite people. So thanks for having me. Oh, thanks, Anthony. Anthony is my go-to person. When I need a perspective to just whip me into place, especially on the subject of climate justice and vulnerable populations, and I need to address my own blind spots, Anthony is the person that I call. So that is why I wanted you on this podcast because I, I need you to whip me into place when it comes to coronavirus and climate change and all those connections. And I'm really excited to do that. I understand that you are sort of coming to us today at a particularly raw moment. Would you mind just explaining that? The um, network that I'm a part of, um, Climate Justice Alliance, and obviously, as you stated earlier, speaking for myself here in this conversation, people that are member organizations are affiliated with some who I knew personally and some who I knew vicariously. You know, we lost about 10 people, you know, over the last three or four days. These are folks who are in areas that were already in crisis before COVID-19 impacted them even more. Places like Mississippi, where people were being turned away for testing and treatment because of their lack of having healthcare access. And then yesterday got the news that one of my mentors, Sabina, after a very valiant fight with pancreatic cancer for two years, succumbed to a combination of the two. So shit has gotten very, very real. This isn't just like news stories for us anymore. Those of us who represent frontline communities, environmental justice communities, many of our elders are feeling the impacts of COVID-19. Some have taken off work. Many are self-quarantined. And I myself tomorrow am going to get tested as well for COVID-19. So it's a very real moment. It's a heavy moment. But at the same time, I, 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 it sounds kind of paradoxical, but I think that it's also a moment for massive opportunity. And I'm really hoping that we can seize this moment as a climate community and as a left movement as well. Because you know what COVID-19 has really done is put a magnifying glass on everything that wasn't working already. You know, Our economic infrastructure, our healthcare infrastructure, our racial justice infrastructure, or lack thereof, the prison systems. I mean, everything is being exposed exposed as once for how inadequate and anemic that it is. And so maybe that represents a silver lining and an opportunity in a paradoxical way. I'm so sorry. And I, I'm blown away by that number of 10 people in your network alone and the Climate Justice Alliance network alone. And I feel like it just 
like you said, puts this magnifying glass on what we mean when we say vulnerable communities. It's not just to climate change, it's coronavirus too. You know, good point, right? I mean, what we knew when we think about sort of the climate shock events that really have gotten us speaking about the quintessential threat of climate change, right? We're talking Katrina, obviously, we're talking Maria, we're talking Sandy, which, you know, really impacted our home state of New York. We're talking Harvey, but even, you know, ahead of those storms, right? There were so many things that were already going wrong and those storms exacerbated the issues that vulnerable populations were already going through. We know, for instance, that even to this day in places in New York City like Staten Island, there, there are still public housing units that are connected to diesel gas generators because the electricity hasn't fully been restored. This is years you know, after Sandy. So yeah, one of my mentors what she said to me was that, you know, COVID-19 is a dress rehearsal for the climate apocalypse. And it's up to us to do everything to make sure that that show never actually gets produced and never sees its first day, its, its opening day. And I would have to agree with her. She's absolutely right. Because as you just said, communities like that were already in crisis are now close to apocalypse. We're talking about indigenous communities, people indigenous to Turtle Island, where this virus could wipe them out. I mean, that's not hyperbolic, you know, at all. We have context for that, right? With smallpox, and when you talk about the lack of infrastructure and investment in these indigenous communities, who are also many times rural communities, who don't have the healthcare infrastructure that is no different from the lack of healthcare infrastructure in places like my original homeland, Sierra Leone. I was talking to my dad the other day and he straight up said, he's like, son, you know, you thought Ebola was bad. This continent is about to lose millions of people. Yeah. And I feel like I hear so much every day on the news from corporations, from doctors, from big media personalities. And I'm just not finding that many people who are speaking up for the most endangered, most marginalized in society. And you come to us working at Climate Justice Alliance, working with frontline communities across the country. Who exactly are we talking about when we're talking about vulnerable populations to both COVID and climate? No, that's a really great question. We're talking about communities that have been rendered into sacrifice zones since FDR's New Deal, right? Whether it's redlining and the selection of certain communities that were selected for the placement of toxic facilities, refineries, mountaintop removal, right? So we're not just even talking about Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. We're also talking about poor white folk from Appalachia, from West Virginia, who also happen to be the folk where Bill Clinton's welfare reform really, really impacted them with work requirements for temporary assistance for uh, needy families. And things like that. So we're, we're talking about people who the government has basically stated, you know, in no uncertain terms, that your life is not worth as much as someone who either lives in a coastal city or someone who is wealthy, that we are going to poison your water, we are going to prevent you from having access to clean water. You know, I, I mean, we're, we're talking about Flint, where, you know, here we are with a global pandemic. We're talking about Detroit, where there's fucking water shutoffs, right? Like in Michigan right now, water is shut off. Or places like the Ponca here in Omaha or the Omaha Nation, where they don't have access to clean water because of years and years of neglect and years and years and years of austerity for the sake of allowing, as Senator Sanders likes to say all the time, a few wealthy people to 
to suck everything that they could and leave the scraps. We're talking about people who have been deemed appropriate to be sacrificed so that mainly wealthy and affluent white people can get their energy, cool their homes, keep their homes, drive big cars, and treat the land however they want to. So this is really just where we are seeing that climate change is barely about emissions and pipelines and fossil fuel infrastructure. It's really about the root causes of white supremacy, patriarchy, and colonization. That is all like coming to a head right now and the neglect of that. And you know, what I also like to say, Emily, is that COVID-19 is exposing the ineffectiveness of everything, including the left and the progressive movement. It's kind of like what I said on a call with some amazing labor leaders, Marty Smith from NNU, Sarah Nelson, who I think is maybe a key component of the future of the United States of America and maybe the world, and hearing these stories about flight attendants exposed, frontline healthcare workers exposed, and my reaction was like, welcome to the covenant. How, how y'all are feeling today is how frontline communities feel every fucking day. So welcome to the covenant. Let's get to work together. Yeah, and it makes me think of how many people in this country don't have access to tests, aren't mm -hmm. getting tested, don't think that what is potentially happening to them is COVID, especially in communities where perhaps you live next to a coal-fired power plant and you have asthma problems already, you already have respiratory problems, things like that. So I want to lift up one of Climate Justice Alliance's most brilliant people, an incredible sister named Sylvia Chi, who is the policy director for the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. On a call, Sylvia broke it down and she said that we're talking about, oh, be careful of the immunocompromised. That's who we have to center right now. And we were mainly characterizing older people as being immunocompromised. But Sylvia said, look, you know, communities like Richmond, California, where there's this massive exposure to refineries and to toxic air, those people are also immunocompromised of all ages, right? Of all ages because of respiratory disease, because of asthma. You've got places where people like Michelle Martinez from Michigan Environmental Justice Council and Teresa Landrum, also of the same organization, fighting in Detroit's most, uh, Michigan's most polluted zip code, the 48217. Teresa's telling me there are children being born, babies being born with asthma right away. So as soon as they are born, they are immunocompromised. You know, a, a frontline community, Houston, New York, the Bronx, everywhere, Detroit, Richmond, California, Kettleman City, Cancer fucking Alley, Louisiana where we're seeing COVID-19 really starting to, uh, for lack of a better phrase, take off. These people are in what WBE Du Bois would say are in double jeopardy because they live in frontline communities. They are black, brown, and indigenous, right? And COVID-19. So I would add to Du Bois's theory and say they're in triple jeopardy right now. And then, by the way, there is no indication that this is going to be handled ahead of hurricane season, which is longer and more powerful now. So it's, it's precarious. You know, it's really, really precarious right now. There's so many threats that are coming at people at once. That in itself is outrageous enough to me, but there is 
an economic argument to be made there. Not only are we losing people we didn't have to lose, but we are exacerbating our healthcare system, our hospital system, our doctors are overworked because people are dying. People are experiencing these symptoms of COVID-19 and they don't either can't differentiate between them or they've been exacerbated. And yeah. so when I hear people say that these two things aren't connected, when we're, the EPA is relaxing air pollution enforcement mechanisms during COVID-19, it's like, do you not understand the connection between, how do people not understand the connection between these two things? What we've done on the left too much is that we've like focused on the symptoms of this crisis and not the root causes. The phrase that's in the lexicon right now, of course, is Green New Deal. And for me, what I would say is that we will never have a Green New Deal until we deal with white supremacy, patriarchy, and colonization. We will never have Medicare for all until we deal with white supremacy, patriarchy, and colonization. All of these social safety nets, all of these incredible plans that are being promoted by some great thinkers, people who I respect, people who you've already interviewed on this podcast, who I love and look up to, but... I don't see them asking like the questions that really need to be asked. Like, can this be done as long as there is a system of white supremacy? The big sickness is white supremacy, patriarchy, and colonization. That is the sickness that we have to find a cure to. And then we can have solution multipliers like Green New Deal, like Medicare for All, like free college tuition. Because right now, the attitude of just like, why would I help you know, a neighborhood of people who I hate and, then, and then, that I don't have to live in? So we can't expect the average person who isn't in our echo chambers to see the axiomatic nexus between COVID-19 and this intersectional climate crisis. How are you saying specifically white supremacy, patriarchy, colonization play out in your work during the coronavirus crisis? Because you're working with grassroots organizations, you're working with marginalized communities. The coronavirus specifically, how are you seeing these yeah. things play out? Look at where the new epicenters are starting to be created. New York City, even with gentrification, big population center for black, brown people and people who are non-white. Louisiana, which in my opinion is the state that houses possibly the most important cultural city in the United States of America, New Orleans, starting to really, really take off there and get out of control. Detroit, Michigan. There's a Democratic governor in Michigan who allowed for water utilities to be shut off. This definitely impacted disproportionately black and brown people who were already having issues with being able to pay their bills, put food on the table. So what I'm seeing is that some of the people that we lost were turned away because they didn't have access to healthcare. And we, even if they did have access to healthcare, we already know that there's a racialization in how people are treated and how they are diagnosed. So um, the way I'm seeing it play out is the same way that I've always seen it play out is that until this issue starts disproportionately impacting white people, it's not going to be taken like fully serious. So this is again why I say this is such an important time for a massive period of introspection. We, even when we say things like Green New Deal, it includes New Deal. New Deal has been referred to by Ira Katz Nelson, amazing author, as when affirmative action was white, and by Eduardo Porter. He referred to it as welfare for white people. The, the New Deal. And to see some thought leaders just say like, yeah, the New Deal was racist and exclusionary, but it still serves as a great foundation of what we can build off of. 
like, really? Fuck you. Like, like what? you're a white person getting to say that. You benefited from the New Deal. You were able to create generational wealth where the New Deal also at the same time created sacrifice zones through redlining and prevented Black people from enjoying generational wealth, which is why today the average household medium wealth for a Black family is $17,000 versus $175,000 for an average white family. So even with things like that, I'm seeing the white supremacy because white supremacy right, can be exercised both consciously and unconsciously. I want to talk about, too, policy. We're talking about the Green New Deal a lot, and obviously we're not doing anything Green New Deal-esque in our relief packages to address coronavirus. And I talked a little bit in my interview with Kate Aronoff about the failure of imagination in Washington to address big problems. And she talked about the Green New Deal and and other things. But I'm wondering if we had a political system where there were no failure of imagination and we were able to address multiple crises together, what would we see come out of Washington right now? Okay. I mean, I think first and foremost, a massive transformation of our agricultural and food production system, which is climate policy, by the way. Here in Nebraska, about three years ago, I started an organization with my good friend, Graham Christensen, who's a sixth generation farmer. I met Graham through a program that I was in called the Young Climate Leaders Network. And when Graham started talking to me about regenerative agriculture and how it is a solutions multiplier, we're talking about regenerating the soil. We're talking about getting soil back to doing what it's supposed to do, which is sequestering greenhouse gas emissions. I remember my first reaction to him was like, why the fuck aren't we talking about this more? Are you, are you kidding me? You're telling me that this can happen. And some of the farms that we've regenerated, we've heard from the wives of farmers of, you know, he's drinking less. He's hitting me less. He's being less abusive. He's happier. You know what I mean? He's spending more time with his family. So it would look like things that not only put money in our pocket, but it improved our quality of life. So I would hope that like our government, uh, to Kate's point, and Kate is obviously a brilliant writer and brilliant thinker herself, is that our government thinks too quantitatively and not enough qualitatively. And that's where there's that vacuum of imagination. And that's capitalism, right? It's just all about the money and the short-term quarterly profits and bottom lines, but we're not thinking qualitatively. So there's that. It would be thinking about the fact that education in Korea, in South Korea, is considered a matter of national security. They want everyone in their country to be educated because in their minds, if our populace is not as educated as possible, it puts us at risk. (laughs) That's, that's, That's just incredible thinking right there. We talk a lot about whiteness in the environmental movement over many years. You and I have talked about that subject and this is a well documented problem in the environmental movement is that it's just been so disproportionately white-led, especially in the large green groups. And I've often asked you to explain to my probably generally white audience why that is a problem and why in order to solve climate change, we need that to not be the case. Mm. And I'm wondering if you can do that again But in this specific moment, not just climate change, if you are seeing it all, how are you seeing disproportionate whiteness and the environmental movement hinder or harm our response to coronavirus? This is great. So I have a chapter in my book that's coming out. Well, it was supposed to come out in September, but it might be delayed now. And it's called Whiter Than Green New Deal. 
<laughs> you know, and from an essay that I wrote and got yelled at about, by the way, back in university. See, this is why I should have listened to you, even though I didn't know yet and gone to a public school. Because <laughs> these private schools, they don't like it when you take on whiteness, you know, they'll threaten to take away your fucking scholarship. <laughs> you, know, but like, you know, but from a piece that I wrote called Whiter Than Green, I think that what has happened is that we've got to also look at like, who were the founders of some of these organizations? I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, white supremacists found the Sierra Club and, and people who got off, literally got off on hunting and killing Native American people. And so you don't just like get rid of that mentality just because you make Aaron Mayer the board president. You do that though, by producing new leaders. And this is where I want to lift up Charlene Carruthers, the incredible, brilliant co-founder of the Black Youth Project 100. And she says that in her amazing book, Unapologetic, that one of the agreements that we have to make is develop and build up new leaders and spokespeople. So now Sierra Club has amazing, beautiful brothers like Ben Beachy who will totally acknowledge and have no problem with being like, yes, my organization has been a problem in bringing people together. So the environmental community, and as well as the funders who are funding these movements, have a choice to make. Do you want to continue to foster a culture of competition, or do you want to bring people together by fostering a culture of cooperation in how you fund and who you're funding? So if you're funding Sierra Club, but you're not funding Push Buffalo and Rawa Gritsmatsi and, and the amazing work that she's doing, if you're funding League of Conservation Voters, but you're not funding Colette Pinshaw Battle and the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, who enacted the first regional Green New Deal effort in the country, if you're funding NRDC, but you're not funding Benicia Albert and Tom Goldstooth and Tara Hauska and all these other amazing indigenous leaders who are showing us the way, who are basically just saying things like, hey, we've been doing this shit for centuries. If you want to win, you know, we're here. Whenever you want to listen to us, you know, like balance with earth and whatnot, we kind of know how to do that. But whenever you're ready to listen, you know, we're here for you and not just parade those people around when you need them to be the pipeline. That's when we will actually become, as I like to say, a movement instead of just a community. And it sounds like, too, that it might be good for coalition building within the environmental movement because we've talked about this disconnect before between the big white-led environmental national groups and a lot of the grassroots climate justice environmental groups. A good way to coalition build might just be simply to push for more data and more mm -hmm. information from these communities for coronavirus outbreak. Yeah, you really do want to kind of make sure that you have the data of people who are being impacted first and worse by it. You know, here's the thing with pandemics. It doesn't work like gentrification. You can't just push like, some people out and then consider yourself safe. It's the same thing with climate change. You can, for a while, just be like, oh, it's just those poor black and brown people. Oh, it's just those indigenous people. Sorry, you know, eventually it's going to hit you. And it's going to hit you harder because it's only getting stronger and more powerful. I love what Bill McKibben said when the brother had a cold in 2016, fighting to just get sane climate policy included in the Democratic Party platform. And he was like, this is physics. And phys I mean, Bill doesn't curse, so I'm just going to pretend that I'm Bill. You know, this is physics, and physics doesn't give a fuck about uh, red states or blue states or black and brown people. It's, you know, it's just going to hit you. And that's how I would have said it if I was Bill. But he's absolutely right. What is the one thing that you want to make sure people are doing in their lives today yeah. that could help disproportionately affected communities? 
I want to talk specifically about that bullshit memo that EPA sent out. Here's one thing that people listening to this can do right now. Call your governor and call your attorney general and tell them to fucking ignore it. Okay, read the memo. It said authorized states or tribes may take a different approach under their own authorities. Hmm, seems like y'all have just in effect triggered the 10th Amendment. So write to your governor and your attorney general and either tell them to ignore it or to get gangster. So maybe now they can impose all kinds of things that they might consider crazy, but we would consider pretty sane. Tell your governor to say that, hey, EPA has basically told me we can take a different approach. Tribes can take a different approach. You know, so let's educate our people. Tribes can essentially say, well, if you can't regulate this right now, maybe you need to turn that pipeline off that's going through our sovereign territory. And maybe certain governors and attorneys general can say, you simply cannot just say that a farm that has a bunch of animals that were supposed to be shipped is now a CAFO, but we're not going to regulate it as a CAFO. No, you can just say no. So that's one thing. The is other that thing true? That can, I'm going to have to look at that. I, I'm going to send it to you, my friend. Yes, sis. It like, right, like, we'll, here's, th this is verbatim, <laughs> sister. This is the other thing that is so dumb about Trump and Wheeler's EPA. Here's a quote. This memorandum does not alter any provisions of any statute or regulations that contain legally binding requirements, and it is not itself a regulation. Ignore that shit. Ignore that shit, people, because they basically said it's not a regulation. And if EPA tries to sue a governor or a tribe, awesome. Imagine the headlines. I mean, you'll write the piece, Emily. Like, EPA sues tribe for protecting its people. Great. Try us. Fuck around and find out, as I like to say. I mean, that's the headline that maybe I would write, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it just seems to me like the basic point that people should understand when talking about climate change and coronavirus and vulnerable communities is that the communities that are disproportionately affected by both crises are the same communities and they're the communities that we tend to ignore the most. They're not the affluent white people and you have been affected by that personally. We talked about that right at the beginning. They're not the stories that we hear most often of the people who we're losing. Could you tell us about someone who you've lost recently, who is a member of one of these communities that maybe just to humanize a little bit? Like, Yes, absolutely. I sat on a board with her, as a matter of fact, Sabina. I won't say her last name just because I don't know if I have clearance for that, but Sabina, who, frontline community in Los Angeles. Sabina, it was just all power. She was a warrior poet. And what she would say to me and what's giving me energy is like, you better make sure that my life wasn't in vain. Like cry, you know, I'll give you like, Sabino say some shit like, I'll give you two hours to cry and then get your ass back to work because there's people who are still alive that are depending on what you and groups like Climate Justice Alliance and all of our members do. But I do feel that every black and brown and frontline person that has been lost, I take it personally. I take it very, very personally. There's a brother out in um, Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, who is now the lieutenant governor. When he was the mayor of his uh, city, which was just decimated by the 2008 collapse, and there was a lot of crime and a lot of people died, he would tattoo the name of every single person that died while he was mayor of that city on his arm. But I'm tattooing the names of those people who we lost into my heart and into my mind 
because that's what's going to like pull me through this. That's what, whatever, you know, is the results of my COVID-19 test tomorrow. I know that I have access to healthcare. I have that privilege. I have the, the, the privilege of, of working from home. There's a great sister, Rachel, who I'm working with now from the Great Narrative Institute. And she's like saying every day, every week as this continues, it's going to stop being like three or four degrees of separation of people who we know that died, right? It's going to be four degrees, three degrees, two degrees, and then we're going to know somebody personally, right? And let's not wait for it to get to that point. You know, let's act now and get our shit together and tell this fucking government to get its shit together. If, if this isn't going to like cause us to act now, I, I don't know. Then I don't even want to be a part of the left anymore. You know, I don't, I don't want to be considered a progressive. Are you experiencing symptoms? Why are you getting a COVID-19 test? Just kind of like the fluish type symptoms, the sore throat, even like losing like a little bit of balance, but just you feel it in your heart. Neshama is the word in Hebrew that something isn't right. So we all know our bodies better than anyone. We better go take care of that. So I can still smell stuff. Paula told me I used too much garlic just last night. So that's good. And I, I agree. I did it on purpose. But yeah, I'm not, definitely not feeling 100%. Maybe some people refer to them as mild symptoms. But most importantly, I need to know so that like I just quarantine the fuck out of myself and make sure that I don't put anybody at risk. Well, I hope the best for you. And if you do have it, I hope it doesn't like affect you. And then you're back to your normal self. You seem pretty normal right now. Yeah, we'll get through this. I appreciate you so much, Emily. Everything that you do, everything that you write, you're a very, very big, important part, a variable of this environmental justice, climate justice equation. So thank you. Well, thanks, Anthony. All right, that's it. Thanks for checking out the Heated Podcast. We're producing this in collaboration with Drilled. And thank you to Amy Westervelt for her partnership. One quick thing, though, before we go... The public need for information right now is huge, and everyone is hungry for information about the pandemic. But even though readership of news is higher than ever, the journalism industry is getting hammered. The advertising marketplace is collapsing. Advertisers just aren't stepping up to support journalists. They're gunning for their own financial interests and pulling their ads from news outlets everywhere. The Heated Podcast doesn't rely on ads, only listeners. We're a 100% independent project with no corporate or foundation backing. There has never been a more important time to support news that matters to you. So please, if you're enjoying the podcast, consider supporting the team through our GoFundMe page. 100% of what you give goes to production costs and supporting the four-person team who's producing this series. Anything you can give would be appreciated. But people have been saying that $30 or $60 works for them. That breaks down to 5 or 10 bucks per podcast. Your individual action right now to help cover the costs will make a difference. Please go to GoFundMe and search Heated Podcast. That's GoFundMe and Heated Podcast. This podcast is produced by Heated with support from Limina House. Our production team is my co-executive producer, Michael Alcesser, Paul Chufo is our engineer and producer, and Jessica France runs our operations. I'm Emily Atkin, your host and the founder of Heated, a newsletter for people pissed off about the climate crisis. Check us out at heated.world. We made everything we've done available for free during the COVID crisis. Thanks for being here. See you next time. Bye.